How's everybody doing? Oh, man, there's a little pepper in the 1115 masks. I think it might have something to do with Abby Tiana spinning uh, as we were thanking God. It was amazing. Man, I tell you what, I am so thankful for uh, you guys. And I love being here, but I also love being on a uh, two-week break. Uh, I, it was absolutely an amazing time to spend with family, uh, do some things that uh, the Harmon family hadn't, been, hadn't really ever been able to do. Um, and Antley did an amazing job kicking this series off in, uh, as we jump into First and Second John. Uh, and, and then uh, Dave just picked up the baton and ran with it and gave us a good overview and, and, and touched on First John in, uh, uh, First John chapter 1, First John chapter 2. And we'll jump into First John chapter 3 this morning. If you got your Bible, that's where we're going to be right at the very beginning. Um, and you're probably wondering, um, and this is one of, one of the reasons I love the summer, is we get to just open the Bible. We don't have a series title other than First John, Second John. Uh, and so Antley actually asked me that. He's like, what's the series title? I said, we're just opening the Bible and we're studying together uh, as, as a church. I love that. I love the summer. It's one of those times when we, we, we do it throughout the year in different ways. But the summer, we always pick a book and we dive in and we, we, wor we work through it. And the good thing about these two, if you read them, there's some tension in First John, Second John, and Third John. I mean, you read it, it can, you know, it's pretty tense. Uh, one of the reasons is, is John's just old when he's writing this. If you know anything about this passage, it was written about 85, 95 AD is what we know um, in terms of uh, historically when it was written. So if you do the math, I mean, Jesus' ministry was around the 33-ish, you know, in the 30s AD, right? And you've got, you know, adult apostles, disciples that were following him. By the time he gets to this and he's writing this to the churches, dude's old. I mean, the dude is, is and so you get like straight, like truth. Like he's not, I mean, he's not worrying about what anybody thinks. He's not worrying about how you feel about it. He's, he's desperate with his last breaths as he's, as he's old to, to give you the truth of what he's found. He's got perspective. And if you don't know, if you, if, if this hasn't landed on you, people that are older than you, they know more than you. They just do. Um, and we, sometimes we, in our culture, we kind of that, there's the, the arc and then all of a sudden, oh, look at the old, the old people are looking at you like, yeah, you'll see. I mean, they just know. They, you know, they, they know something. And John is dropping some serious truth in his books to the church. It's almost as if um, he's grabbing the shirt collar of us younger people and saying, don't miss this. Don't, don't miss what I, what, what I want you to, to understand and what I want you to, what I want you to know. So if you got your Bible, we're going we're gonna to jump right in. We're going to read this and we're going to work through it together. Uh, he, he starts out right in this passage. And again, this, this today will resolve some of the tension that you see in uh, these books. And one of the main tensions you see is as a church that, you know, invites anyone and everyone into the unending ocean of grace, which, you know, theologically means that we know that Jesus did it all and we didn't do anything to, to be in relationship with him. We didn't earn it. It wasn't because we came to church and, you know, we were a little bit bad and we got a little bit better because we went to church, went to Sunday school, did a mission trip, you know, served in kids ministry. And now we, you know, God loves us now. No, there's nothing, there's nothing that you've done that's made God love you. It, it's, it's the reason that John, you'll see, uses the, the terminology of children. It's the reason Ephesians uses the terminology dearly loved children because, you know, when children are born, they've done nothing amazing. They've actually done nothing. And yet you've got parents that are over the moon. They can't stop Instagramming pictures of this thing that's just got a jelly. I mean, it doesn't move around or do anything. 
but yet you hold your child. I remember holding all my kids and going, I can't, I'm just out of my mind in love with this child. It's because that's, that's a beautiful picture of the gospel, that your sins past, sins present, sins future have been annihilated by the cross of Jesus Christ. The fact that he came and he made a way through his blood, his death, burial, and resurrection, that you might be in a relationship with God. Ephesians says, you didn't do anything. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is God's doing and not yours. And so we've got in this passage a, a lot of John saying, well, if, you, if you're sinful, if you're walking into sin, then you, you, you can't have any part of the kingdom of God. So you're like, wait, I thought my sin was paid for. So there's tension there, and you'll feel that tension. And we're going to go back and cover some of the things that are in chapter 2. Like it talks about some weird stuff that I know everybody's like, why did you skip that? I didn't. We're going to get back to it. We're going to cover it in a collective. But this right here is a foundational hinge that will resolve a lot of the tension that you feel in terms of, you know, what, what, what does my sin, my current sin have to do with my life? What is the... the the, my current status with God. How does he feel about me? Because there's things that John says that makes you feel like, is God, does he still like me? Well, this is going to make it abundantly clear about how God feels about you. So 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. He says right off the top, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. You notice he's making a point here. He's really wrapping himself in this idea of making us understand that we're children of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, he's saying it's deeper than, than something surface. You are children of God. And then he's making these connections to being children and how we act and what it looks like to be imitators of Christ. He says, uh, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. He's making the point, look, we don't fully know on this side of heaven, on this broken side of heaven. We don't, we're gonna see Jesus at some point as a believer face to face and it's gonna be very obvious what God's done for us. We get a, it says in 1 Corinthians that we see through a glass darkly or dimly. In other words, we don't have a full picture. I mean, we just don't know what heaven's like. We just don't know what it's like to see Jesus face to face. But he's, he's trying with words, which is very hard, to give you a picture of what's happened to us spiritually and the implications of that, like what it means for us. So we know that one day we'll be like him and we'll, we'll, we'll see him as he is. All who have this hope in him, purify themselves just as he is pure. Again, that language of it, he's this way, and because you're children, it's possible that you could be this way. And as I was reading this passage, I, I don't know what, why, when you hear all that terminology, children of God, and, and it's almost as if it's, it's the same language that you, you see in Ephesians, this idea of sonship and daughtership, that we're, because we're believers, we're connected to God, and he uses this language of God the Father, and he's it's almost, I, I can't, can't stop thinking about this idea of spiritual DNA. Like he's given us this spiritual DNA. We had this old DNA, this sinful DNA, and then all of a sudden there's this change, this death to life experience. When we, by faith, step into that with Jesus, he changes something in, inside of us. Now, does that mean that we never sin? No. I mean, it's, it's, it's very obvious. We're a room full of sinners. But something in us has changed. There, there's something in us that's, 
that he's, he's done. And just thinking about this idea of, of the picture that, that's being painted in the, the depth that John is trying to portray to us and portray to the churches. Um, I just started thinking about my own kids and just the craziness, you know, I mean, obviously DNA, my kids, unfortunately, um, they look like me uh, because of DNA, right? Oh, at least half, you know, the other half are beautiful, uh, like my wife. But there's other elements, there's a, there's a depth to the way that God connects families together. And I was thinking about that. We were on vacation and we got to go to Puerto Rico, as Dave mentioned last week, never been there before. Um, we, uh, we, we, went, we went there to do like discovery stuff, like you know, snorkel, check out the island. Uh, we weren't, you know, it's not the big high surf season there. Uh, weren't expecting a ton of surf, but we, br- we brought some boards just in case. Um, you, know, it, it, you know, we weren't expecting to do it, but a swell happened to come in. I mean, what are you going to do? Uh, so surf came in, and uh, so we, we'd planned to surf for those, for those two days, and we went to this reef break, which my kids had never surfed on a reef. They've surfed sand beaches here uh, and in a few other places, but never, you know, on foreign, you know, well, I guess Puerto Rico's not foreign, but like a place where they'd not surfed before. And reef break, and this one's a rocky, like you don't walk out on sand. You literally walk out over the rocks and you have to jump over this little section of reef when the wave comes in to get over that without hurting yourself so you can get out to the safer place to surf. And you surf over, you can literally look down and you see the reef underneath you. It's beautiful, clear water. And I get there, and for those of you that know me pretty well, I get pretty excited about surfing. So I get there and um, I'm, I'm, I'm not even looking at what the kids are doing other than yelling at them to put on their leashes and let's go. And I'm getting over there to, to the rock reef. I, you know, I should have brought some pictures so you could see exactly what was going down. But I thought, you know, I don't want to do that. Like come back to the pastor that comes back from vacation and shows all his family photos and pictures. Instead, I'm going to describe it in a lot of detail. Um, and so I got, I get on the, on the rock reef and I time it, jump over the thing and start swimming out. And the kids eventually paddle out and, and uh, behind me and we surf and it was amazing. Um, but the coolest thing and the thing that I enjoyed the most was a couple of days later, I was flipping through uh, pictures on my phone because she was taking pictures while we were surfing. Well, she took like a ton of pictures, like a progressive picture of us going up to the rock reef, standing and looking at it, looking down at the reef, going, wow, this looks dangerous. And then jumping over the thing and, and paddling out. And what you see is you see me go out and jump into the water. But what I didn't see, because I didn't turn around and look, is each one of my kids walking up to that deal, looking at it, looking at the thing and jumping over the deal and paddling out one by one, following me. And then there's this shot of like all, all three of them kind of in unison and then me ahead of them leading them out into the, to the waters. And I was just like, <laughs> it's more enjoyable than anything I, I, I did. It's just to see that. And, and it, it just made me think as, I, as I'm reading this and what, what John is trying to display here is this, this idea that it's, it's beyond just spiritual DNA. Like there's something that you that you give your kids. I mean, you can give your, you know, you give them half of your, your genes. As a father, that's what, what, what they get. And it's, it's an incredible thing. But there's something else that's combined with this. Like he's, he's not only talking about the fact that they're children of God, but the weight of what it means for a father to, to love their children. Because there is this thing called nature and nurture. And nowadays in psychological terms, they, they really don't use those terms anymore. It's, you know, it's, more genetics and environment. And you've got the genetic side of what, what a parent gives, and then you've got the environment that a, a parent creates. And how you treat your child from zero to five 
whether you love them, instill confidence in them, encourage them, hug them, um, let them know that you'll never hurt them or harm them. Th- those things have a massive impact. The thing that, that in, in it, from zero to five, the environment that you grow up in, the way that you operate is so important, it affects you for the rest of your life. That's not a biblical platitude. That is scientific. It's like the way that you grow up, the way those, that's why if you, if you go to therapy, and you, most of you probably should, um, if you go to therapy, it, they're, the, what are they going to do? They're going to ask you about what? Childhood. How did mom, what, how, what was mom like? How was dad? How did dad treat you? You know, and you're going to say, it's terrible. No, I mean, you're going you're gonna to talk about things. I was in middle school and I had a haircut and he called it weird. I mean, you're going to talk about the way that you interacted with your parents. And those are the things that foundationally affect you beyond genetics. They, they make you who you are. Whether they instill love, confidence, encouragement, security. Or maybe on the other end, maybe they didn't listen to you. Maybe they didn't make you feel love. You, you, maybe you, some of you feel like you, you feared physical harm growing up. Maybe you felt like the parent. I know stories in here of people that that's the way you grew up. You were the parent. You were taking care of your parents. That, that affects you for, for a lifetime. That, that is an impact on you forever. And what, what I love about that picture and the depth, because I think sometimes we just read these passages. If you grew up in church, it's like, yeah, I'm a child of God. Jesus loves me. I sang that as a kid. Jesus loves me. I'm a child of God. But there's a depth that John is trying to get across to us with passion. He's an old guy going, don't miss this. You've got to get this. If you do, this is the foundation of everything. For you to understand this will change you. It's just like us as a child understanding and knowing what our father or mother feel and believe about us will affect you for, the li- for a lifetime. He's saying spiritually, more importantly, this is the gold. This is what, rather than, than being people that just come and experience church for an hour, hour and a half, sip lattes and go out into the world, that this will change you forever. And the thing, the tension that I feel when I read a passage like this and see all these exclamation points and see the passion that John writes with, and, and you see the passion of his life, it, it, it makes me ask questions. In fact, if you study John in, in depth, you'll see that there's some historical documents about John. A, a guy named Eusebius, he wrote about first century Christianity, and he tells a story about, about John, the apostle, when he, was, when he was older in his life, and, and they don't know all of the details, but they think when he left the island of Patmos, he started visiting the churches again near the end of his life around the time that he wrote uh, these letters. And he, he went to one particular bishop, and he uh, stayed at that church for a couple of years. But he saw this young man that was there, and he thought, man, this guy is, he's dynamic, and he's young, and he's raw, and I'm going to disciple him, because that's what, that's what he did. That's what, what God told them to do, like disciple people, make them disciples, lead them to the truth. And he's like, I'm going to do that with this guy. This guy could light the world on fire. I'm going I'm to spend time with him. So for the next couple of years, John poured into this young man, this dynamic young man. And when he left, he told the bishop, he said, look, I'm going on to another church. Take care of this kid. Look after him. So he goes away and he comes back a couple of years later. He's doing his round to the collection of churches that he wrote about in Revelation. And he comes back and he goes to the bishop. And what's he going to ask about, right? He's going to say, where's that young man that I discipled? I poured my life into for a couple of years. And he asks him. And in Eusebius' words, he says, alas, he is dead. And John's 
you know, heart drops in his chest and he, he, he looks at him and the bishop goes, let me explain. He says, he's dead to God. He's run off. He's gotten caught up with these, this group of people and they're, they, they're, they're the worst of the worst. They're doing things that you can't imagine. They become this band of robbers. And over the last year or so, he's become the leader of this band. He's completely gone. He's not worth chasing. He's dead to God. He's dead to us. John falls to his knees, rips his clothes in brokenness. He says, go get me a horse. Now think about it. This guy's 85, 90 plus years old. Go get me a horse. What you gonna do, you old man? Go get me a horse. And the guy explains to me, because he's 10 miles up into the mountains. He's like, go get me a horse. And he, he, old man, jumps on the horse, rides up into the mountains. A couple of the band of robbers that were guarding the area grab him and say, we've captured you. We're going to take you to the leader, which was his intention anyways. Like, take me. That's where I want to go. I want to go to the leader. Take me to your leader. And before he even gets into the camp, the leader, the guy that he discipled, sees him, catches eyes with him. And he, this is apparently the toughest guy in this region. Nobody wanted to mess with him. He was... Just absolutely terrifying. He looks at John and in terror, he turns and runs. And John screams out and says, hey, what are you running from? I'm an, I'm an old man. I'm not, I'm not coming here to hurt you. In fact, I would exchange my life for yours just the way Christ exchanged his life for mine. Don't go anywhere. And he beckons him to come back, tells him how much he loves him in this Young man, this tough young man falls to his knees, weeps and repents right there amongst the other band of robbers. And John takes him, puts him on the horse and takes him back to the church and back to his church family. Now, it's an amazing redemptive story, but the thing that I get distracted by in that story is John. I'm like, he's old. He is laser focused. He has courage that... We don't see often, he doesn't worry, he has no fear, he doesn't think about anything but carrying the name of Jesus to the people around him and to the ends of the earth. He believes it with everything that he has. And the question I ask myself, and maybe I'm asking the church, I actually am asking, like, do you ever think, like, I ain't got that. I call myself a Christian, but I, where does this passion come from? Where, where, where does this laser focus? How do you live life circumstantially not worrying about things? How does that even happen? How do you not worry about, John's not worried about any of that. He's not worried about where the kids are going to college. He's not worried about what soccer team they're playing on. You know, it's the, he needs to be with this coach because he's the one that's going to make him a superstar. He ain't worried about that. He's not worried about that stuff. How does that happen? I want that. Where do you get it from? Well, he tells us right here. It's not just in the words. It's not just in him saying, do you see this? He's saying, see, right here. He's, he's using the word, that word see in the very, throw the passage back up there real quick. He says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. That, that word see is behold. Like in some of your translations, King James right here just crushes it. See just doesn't cut it for me in the NIV. And I love the NIV. I love the ESV. But behold is the word. If you dig down into the Greek, behold is what it should be. And it should have stayed that. And no, it's old and it doesn't, we don't use behold. We don't walk anywhere and say that. But there's a depth that John is trying to get to right here. It's, it's about beholding. What great, behold what great love the Father 
has lavished on us. And I got to ask, what, where's this? Where do you get this kind of courage? Where, where do you get this kind of confidence that nothing can overcome you, this, this thing that can defeat fear? And he's doing it. He's, he's making this point, this hinge to relieve some of the tension of all the other, like how do I, how do I live the way that God's calling me to live? He's like, it's not about doing the right thing. It's about understanding something. And the first point today is under, we need to understand, and he's, he's leading us to this place of understanding what it means to know God. Not, not know about God, because as church people, we're good at that, especially in the Southeast Bible Belt. We've been teaching kids Bible verses, and if you've grown up in church, that's what you've done. You've gone to your Baptist church or your Methodist church or your whatever church, and they've taught you the Bible, and you've learned about God. Now, that's the foundation we want. We want the Word of God, but there's, there's more than just knowing about God. John didn't, if he just knew about God, do you think he would risk his life for, for the majority of his life for this mission? for something that he just knew a little bit about. I thought, this is a good idea, you know? I studied some mysticism for a while, did a little bit of this, sprinkled a little of this in my life, and, you know, I got into this Christianity thing, and it seems good. No, he, he knew God. He knew there was a depth to his knowing. And he, not only did he know God, but he knew the love of God. And he's expressing it here in this passage to know, not just know about God, not just know God, and this is an intimate knowing, it's a beholding of the love of God. Behold, look, can you see what love God has lavished on us? And if you look at the word lavish, that's even more, even more, it's not even a common thing that you would use in conjunction with love. It makes sense to us, especially if you've read this passage before, but it's a bestowing, which is different. Like love is a fact, like when you, when you, love is a complicated word anyway. I mean, there's some people in here going, you better believe it. Um, but love is, it's, it is, but it's a fact. It's like, I love you. Like with my wife, I, I love you. There's a fact that's there, right? But when you, when, when you lavish it, when you bestow it, which is what the, the language is saying here, it, it's different. It's like packaging it up, wrapping it, and giving it as the most valuable gift you could possibly give someone. It's a different picture. It's, it's, it's bestowing, it's, it's lavishing this. I want you to absorb, I want you to understand this with a depth. It's a depth knowing of his love and that you are his children. And that, he's giving you something that will change you forever. The possibility. Now, whether or not it changes us or not can be you know, partly in our court in terms of, I mean, the DNA is never going to change. If you're a child of God, you don't earn it. Ephesians tells us you didn't deserve it. If, if you earned it, then you could, if you could unearn it, then that means you earned it. And if you earned it, then you are, then God didn't do something and you had to do something, which is not the gospel. But just, you could be a son or a daughter of the king and still run off and do what you want. You could still have his DNA. I mean, you could have two kids, one that stays at home and is obedient and stays under the love of the father and the mother and they're awesome. And you can have the same, you know, DNA, another sibling run off and be completely different. I mean, you see that. But you've got this experience that John's saying. It's not just about knowing about, it's about knowing, it's about beholding, it's about an experience. It's about the spiritual DNA and the environment of God doing something. 
And I'm even having a hard time describing it. It's one of those things. It's, it's almost like if you have read about something, like if you've, been, if you've never been to the West Coast, but you know it, but you've seen it on the news or you've seen it on TV, you've seen pictures of it. It's, oh, it's beautiful. It's great. There's mountains and there's the sea. And, but you go there, it takes your breath away. It's Grand Canyon. See pictures of it, you're like flipping in the book. Whoa, Grand Canyon. You stand there and you can't breathe. You're like, you realize I, there's something bigger and greater in this world when you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon. It's just there's something in knowing about it and then being there and experiencing it. When we were on vacation, we just went to this place. I mean, snorkeling's amazing, but we've done that before. Like you see all the reef fish and do all the stuff. We, we did a unique snorkeling tour uh, while we were in Puerto Rico. We went down to the southern corner. We were staying in the mid to northern corner. Um, and it was a uh, bioluminescent tour. They have, there's five bioluminescent lagoons, and these are Sorry for the scientific terms, y'all know I'm a geek, but dinoflagellites are these, these beings, these little tiny, almost they're the size of a pinhead they, that float around the ocean, and if you disturb them, they all light up. And they, they don't, they, they, a lot of times they're just spread out all over the ocean, but they collect in five lagoons across the globe, and three of those lagoons are in Puerto Rico. Don't, I couldn't tell you the science of why they all get crammed in there, but there is some science. But there's three of them, and we went to one of them. And so we snorkeled during the day, you know, had dinner, and then we went to this other, they, they took us out. I'm, that's all I want to do. Like, I, I'm excited. I've talked about a bioluminescence in here before, so I'm pretty, like, excited. Like, woo, we're going to do this thing. And so we snorkeled, and it was great. All the kids are enjoying it. I'm like, ah, it's great, but I can't wait for the bioluminescence. And then they took us out and took us to this lagoon, and I kept thinking about the timeline. I'm like, oh, this is not going to happen. You know, it's like, there's no way. The sun's too high. They're going to take us to this thing. It's not going to be dark enough. It's got to be dark. Do they know about the, you know, the aperture of the eye and the way that light works? And I was just, you know, getting, you know, down and going, you know, or why are we in this other, and they took us to this other island with a lagoon. And I thought that was it. And really they were just taking us there to like, they wanted, they, they had a big cooler. They're like, just drink beer and party. And we're like, no, we want to see the dinoflagellites. Um, <laughs> So we're sitting there and I'm thinking, we're just going to go home after this and they're going to tell us, oh, you know, they didn't glow tonight. It was just one of those things, kind of like fireflies. And I was going to be really upset. And then we got in the boat and we started heading away from the, where we, we, we would go home. And I was like, ooh, we must be going somewhere else. And they took us to this, it started to get so dark, no moon. And they took us to this dark lagoon. I mean, it was dark 30 in there. And all of a sudden, we're in there, I'm, I'm, I'm like getting excited. And then he starts, the guy starts talking. I'm like, and, and I, then I was like, oh, he's telling us that we're not, because I couldn't see anything. I didn't see, nothing's glowing yet. And he's just talking about the science of uh, dinoflagellites and all the bioluminescence and stuff. And I'm like, great, I guess he's going to tell us why they're not shining and we're going to have to go. And then he says, grab all your snorkeling gear that you used earlier today and put all that on. And we're like, sweet. And then he shuts off all the lights, like everything on the boat. He's like, jump in the water. And now for the excited people, all the kids that, you know, are fearless, they're all like, you know, my kids, a couple of my kids were in the water in seconds, but then there's my, me and my wife are kind of looking. It's like, this is, it's pretty dark. You know, everybody's like, you know, I mean, it was, we were in the, in the middle of the ocean in a lagoon and there's zero lights and there's lots of things in the ocean. I mean, you know, I act all bold surfing. There's sharks out here. It's dark lagoon changes you, man. Turns you into a little girl. And... So finally, we all jump in, and I'm just going to tell you, I, you can't even, I can't describe, they even told you, don't even worry about taking a camera in there, you're going to take pictures, and you're going to be depressed when you get home, because it doesn't capture it at all. It is like being in a sci-fi movie. I mean, it is the craziest thing. It is more 
amazing than I could possibly imagine. You, you, you're moving around, and the, the light trails are all over. It's all over your body every time you move. And you're looking around at other people like, you're glowing. No, you're glowing. And you're just going crazy because it's amazing. It is like, I mean, it is, I won't even say, one of my kids to tears was moved emotionally. Like, I can't, I can't believe this is happening. It's like, I don't. And they literally had to like yell at people to get back in the, we didn't all get back. We don't want to, we want to stay in the fantasy land. We didn't want to get back in the boat because it was so incredible. I mean, I had never, I, and, and it's so, it's so funny. I, it's, it's, When I think about God, I think so many times in my life, I've, I've been in that place of, ah, oh, you know, it's not going to be, you know, just thinking I knew, thinking I knew what it was like to, to experience God and been like, oh, this is all right. This is good. I'm glad I came and I went to church and did this. And, and then there's the moments that where you can't, and, and I'm, I, I'm not saying this is like every minute of every day, because that would be. You know, that's, I think sometimes preachers get up and talk about experiencing God and how we should be living our lives. Look, I get in the grind just like everybody else. But there is something that John's wanting us to understand and know about knowing God and not knowing about God. About being overcome by experiencing God, knowing this truth. Because it's a, it's a truth that we, we all know. Like if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, even people that aren't, they, they, they probably grew up hearing about Jesus. There's very few places you can go and not know a, a decent chunk of the story of who Jesus is, knowing about Jesus. But this is about knowing, knowing him. You know, there's a, a theologian from the 16th century named Charles Goodwin, and he tells a story in relation to, he's trying to relate, he's trying to get around this idea in 1 John chapter 3. Like, this idea of how it takes your breath away, how it's different to just know about something and know facts about something. And he just tells a simple story about, you know, a father and a son walking on a cobblestone street, just cruising along. And the son knows that he's a son. Knows this, I'm definitely related to him. He can't, I'm stamped, you know, I look exactly like him. I know that he loves me. I know that he will protect me. I know that I'm secure with him. I know that he won't hurt me. Those are facts that the son knew. And as they're walking along the street, the father takes his hand, and then takes his other hand, then takes his whole body, lifts him up, up in the air, and he whispers in his ear, he says, I just want you to know how much I love you, that I will never leave you, that I, I care about you. You are everything to me. You will, you, I, I will protect you. I will go to the ends of the earth to keep you safe. I love you so much. And he sets the boy down, and the boy just crumbles into tears. Can't even contain himself emotionally. He's overwhelmed. Now, what changed? Nothing changed factually, right? He knew before all of that, my dad loves me. He'll keep me secure. He'll protect me. I am his son. But then what happened? He experienced all of those things. He experienced the security. He experienced the approval. He experienced the love. He ex he, he's literally chosen by his father in that moment in a way that's different. 
And that puts a little bit of tangibility to, to what we're talking about, this idea, because I think sometimes we talk about experience and it gets this, it's, it's no different than what we're, I'm not talking about extra biblical, like here's the word of God and here's truth of experience. No, it's the word of God meets the experience of the things that we've been reading about, of the things that John's trying to tell us about, about what it looks like to understand what it means to know God. Because when we do, when we understand this bestowing, it changes the very person that we are. And I know the question we ask is like, well, how, how do we experience that? How do we understand? How do we know God this way? And I'll ask these questions just based on what Dave said. I mean, I, I would, would ask, you know, are we, are we with God? And when I say that, I mean, if we almost shudder to use this word, it's like obedience. Are we in that place of not rebelling against God? Are you off doing what you want to do? Or are you in that place truly seeking to follow God? And I'm not saying that in a religious way to say that that has any implication in your salvation. Because your DNA is said as a follower of Jesus, your spiritual DNA, the fact that, that God approves of you has nothing to do with your performance. Since past, present, future, annihilated by the cross of Jesus Christ. DNA is set. But in terms of experiencing God, you're not going to, I mean, you just know. It's not God's fault, but you're not going to experience him if you're away from him, if you're running, if you're not with him, seeking him. Have you asked to experience him that way? Have you asked for the holy hug? You've been in that place. Again, the DNA, it's the, it's the story of the prodigal son. The father never in the story of the prodigal son. The son left and rebelled. He said, give me my money. I'll go do what I want. The father always loved him. The DNA never changed. He was always his son. He was always there with open arms waiting for him to come home. And that's the way God is with you. So it's not about obey or God's going to slap you. It's about there's no better place to be than with the father and under his love. And what, did, what, did, what was the other thing that Dave said? Fellowship of believers. Obedience, right? You know, are we, did we ask? And then fellowship, like being together. I think that's something that's been crushed in the last few years in our country. Like getting, coming, like, and I'm not saying this because I'm like, preachers want a church attendance. Everyone needs to be here. Um, I don't know why I just got Southern at that moment. It just sounded right, you know? You're Southern Baptist, they put the numbers on the wall. Um, but we want to be together. Like it's the way that we spur one another on to love and good works. It's, it's, it's the way that it goes down. It's what's beautiful about you guys. That's why I miss you when I'm gone. Because I'm experiencing the Father's love in and through you. I wouldn't give this up for anything. But part of it is, do I make this a priority for my family? Do I make it a priority for, for me? Is this what I, is this what I, and look, it's not always beautiful and wonderful. It's hard. It's why Paul wrote Ephesians. He's like, it's gonna, people are, you, I'll just be honest, you're gonna hate people, but you gotta love them. I mean, it's why he says it. But man, there's nothing more beautiful than the way God expresses himself through the body. So that's how you do it. But this, the second thing, other than just understanding that, you, that knowing God and knowing about God and bestowing and beholding that love, we want to see his love as miraculous. We want to understand the gravity of being God's daughter or God's son. We want to see God's love as a miracle, not a paycheck. I think in religious circles, sometimes we're just like, we've always, you know, we knew Jesus loved us. 
And it's easy for us to get into the work and the grind of coming to church and it being obligatory. I serve and it's obligatory. I do stuff and it's, you know, I do all this stuff. And of course, I'm going to, maybe I'll, you know, God, God owes me. That's the paycheck. We don't, we don't behold a paycheck. Behold! I got a paycheck! You don't, we don't get excited about a paycheck. Why? Because you deserve it. You worked for it. God's love, you didn't work for. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. We have to see that as a, a miracle. It should, it should be the thing that, that takes our breath away. We've got to see it in that way of understanding that it doesn't even make sense. He shouldn't love me this way. He shouldn't care about me this way. It doesn't even make sense. I was looking at somebody in our first gathering today, and I know their story. Uh, they you know, spent years in prison. Just You talk about walking away from God. Um, I mean, just an unbelievable story of repentance. And the dude just constantly cries um, in worship because he, he gets it. He's like, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. The things that I've done, the, the life that I've lived, I shouldn't be loved by God, but I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that I'm loved by God. I mean, he just knows. And I love looking at him because it reminds me that I'm him. I'm the same rebel. I'm the same just ugly-hearted person that, that could have cared less about God and have done enough bad in my own mind and in my own heart uh, to equal all of that. But yet, God loves me. I mean, I, I thought about it this way. I know this is cheesy, but anybody seen Notting Hill, the movie? I mean, I, it's okay, guys. You don't have to raise your hand. You won't lose your man card. Um, but I have. I'm willing to risk because I'm in touch with that side of myself. Um, but... <laughs> Notting Hill, it's a, it's a romantic comedy. It's funny, guys. Just, just see it. You'll get super good points. Don't be stubborn. Um, and uh, it's Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant. Um, I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but we were talking about Hugh Grant in the last, the last gathering. It was funny. Um, but he's, he plays this guy, William Thacker. He's a nobody, a bookstore owner in central London. And then Julia Roberts plays Anna Scott, who's the most famous like, actress in the world, making $20 million a film. It, um, the, nobody's more recognizable than this woman. Like, nobody. And she's beautiful, and she ends up just strolling into his bookstore, sunglasses on, and they have this amazing exchange because he realizes I'm a nobody, and Anna Scott just walked in my bookstore. You know, he's all excited, and you see it on his face. And then one thing, you know, I mean, you can figure what happens. One thing leads to another, and he realizes at some point, and this is one of the best parts of the movie. He's in his apartment. She's standing there, and he, it, it dawns on him. She digs me. I mean, it's that moment. You know, dudes, like when you realize a girl likes you, and <laughs> she likes me, she digs me. This is like on a whole nother scale. This is the superstar of the universe that's more beautiful than anything. And he's just a dude. Like he's, you know, moderately good looking. Like he's not even, he's just, he's Hugh Grant, right? I mean, he's, they picked him for that role so that you would feel all this, right? And it's amazing. And and you experience, you've got the, the person that should, could get anyone, could doesn't, you would never think. And he's thinking in that moment, I can't believe this is happening. I'm a nobody. And the everybody, the everything loves me. And at the end of the movie, and I'll ruin it for you because you should have watched it by now, um, is she's standing on a stage, she's being interviewed worldwide for, for a movie that's coming out. And he's in the crowd somewhere. And there's a whole lot of stuff that happened to get him there. But he's in the crowd somewhere anonymously there. And she professes her love to him right there. And they figure out that it's him, like just by happenstance, and all the cameras go on to him. And you just see his face. You see this moment where 
the, every, the, the, the most amazing person. And he's just, he's like, it's me. It's me. She loves me. And I love that God's so smart because he, he, he knows that words will be insufficient, although this word is, it never returns void. It's one of the things that will never pass away in this world. But he knows it's going to be insufficient to, to grab the experience and the emotion. But then God uses these illustrations. He uses what? He uses the fact that we are children of God. And we see this beautiful relationship between a father and a son or a father and a daughter. And we feel that but it's still insufficient. So then he uses the bride of Christ and says, the bridegroom and the bride, I want you to understand this because that's the way we're gonna understand the bestowing of love and the idea that somebody picked you, somebody chose you, somebody approves of you, somebody loves you more than anybody else and he is the king of the universe. And you know how much he loved you? This is where God really crushes the illustration in the most powerful and painful way. He says, look at the cross of Jesus Christ. I gave my one and only son because I love you that much. I mean, when you begin to ask the question, what would be the compensation for bleeding out on a garbage dump on Mount Calvary? Why would anyone do that? What would, what would be the trade or the trade-off for choosing that? Jesus chose that. He set his eyes like a flint towards Jerusalem, it says in the Gospels. Knowing that that was his fate, he chose it. And he and the Father are one, right? It's one of the complicated things, but beautiful things in Scripture in the Trinity. It's like, this is God. God didn't send like the, the repairman down there. God sent himself. Why? What was the compensation? You were. You were. You were. He wanted you. He chose you. He picked you and you. He loved you that much. He cared for you that much that he would bleed out and give his life away for you. Let's stand. You know, I never know all the stories in the room, obviously, of how people are traveling through life but I'll just say this, you know, we, we're gonna respond in worship, Austin's gonna lead, and I would just say worship is one of the things that it, for me personally has been the, the place where even when I didn't want to, I stepped in in unison with other believers and I've experienced God in a way that's different. I've experienced his love. I've been reminded of who he is and what he's done just in, in the lyrics, but also the spirit entering in, God's Holy Spirit. Again, it's not just knowing about, it's knowing. And God does that through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we've got an opportunity even beyond worship to engage in what you know, we call it prayer ministry, but just to be able to come forward and experience God. And we always say, you know, if you, and there's a lot, I guarantee you there's a lot of people in this room that need spiritual healing, emotional healing. And I know there's people just because I'm the pastor here that need physical healing. And it'll be an opportunity to get prayed for. And I, I think it'd be ridiculous. Why, why walk out when you need that? Come forward when, when Dan comes up here and just says, hey, you got an opportunity, do it. But also, what if it's just, hey, I don't, I don't feel all that pull, like the need of healing, but man, I, I wanna experience God. I've heard about it, I've, I've read about it, I've had people around me that, that ex exude this passion and it seems real. 
I want to experience it. I've never experienced that. Or I've experienced it before, but I want to experience it again. I want to be, I want to have no fear. I want to have courage. I want to not worry about the mundane crap that I worry about. I want to be fearless. I want to stand in the purpose that God's given me on planet earth. And I'm not, I'm not saying that that's going to like, we've created a magic pad and you're going to come up here and all that's going to happen immediately. But I always say, I say this, it's like, if you're like dying to, to stand in the rain and get soaked by the rain, it's not going to happen unless you go outside. Now, can I guarantee this going to rain? No, but I can tell you that's where it happens. So God's provided his church as a place where we experience him. There's other places you experience God, but man, you've got an opportunity in the middle of this, while the word's being preached, while worship's happening, to experience God. So why not? How you experience it, that's, that's up to God. It's not up to you. It's not up to me. He's the one that, thank goodness, he's in charge of that. And we don't have to force it, you know, push people down, fan the spirit flames, you know. God does all that. Just we step forward, walk six steps and go, God, I'm here surrendering. That's it. That's it. So God, I just pray that you bring your, your spirit just in a powerful way right now right now and everything that you're doing already in the room, God, that you push us forward into a place as a church where we have no fear, no worry, and nothing left but courage.